Welcome to Senior RX Radio. My name is Jaron Stout. And my name is Joanne Pio, and we are the new hosts of Senior RX Radio. And we are still here in lovely Dallas, Texas, celebrating the 50th anniversary of ASCP. Uh, it's just awesome to be here. Even though it's been raining, it's finally the sun has come out today and we're getting a nice sunny day. So it's wonderful to be here. Today, as our guest, we have Dr. Jack Chen, who did a presentation, or he's going to do a presentation tomorrow at the Sunday meeting on management of Parkinson's disease psychosis. So welcome to our show today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And then, so a little fun fact, there's a little history between Jaren and Dr. Chen. They're both from Utah. Yes, University of Utah, uh, Ute alumni. Ah, see, I did my undergrad at the University of Utah, and I applied for the University of Utah Pharmacist School. I wasn't cool enough, but uh, I was told by them when I applied that I didn't get in and that I was one of the final cuts, right? So I, they told me to reapply the next year, but then I got into Midwestern that, that same, like within a couple of months, in the College of Pharmacy of Glendale, and it couldn't have worked out better for me. I loved going there, but I still am a big fan of the University of Utah. I said, did my undergrad work there. So, Excellent. Yeah. And then before we dive into Parkinson's disease, you are a consultant pharmacist. So when we think consultant pharmacist, or, or the misconception is that we all work in the long-term care facilities. But that's not the case with you, right? That's right. That is not the case with me. Uh, my background is clinical neurology pharmacy. And so this past year, I decided to become an independent consultant in the area of clinical neurology. Uh, and because I have a background in academia and the accreditation of academic uh, affairs in pharmacy education, I also consult as an accreditation specialist. So you started the session. Well, you're going to start the session. I had a sneak peek of the session. And you're going to start it with the statistic that approximately 50% of patients with Parkinson's disease will develop persistent psychotic problems. That's right. It's And the percentage may be even higher, especially in the skilled nursing facilities. But overall, it's about half of patients with Parkinson's will develop hallucinations or even more severe symptoms such as delusions, which are false beliefs. When they're often delusional, they will be convinced, not just suspicious, but convinced of a false belief, such as their spouse is having an extramarital affair or that their family members are trying to acquire their property or belongings without permission, uh, things of that nature, paranoid, delusional type of beliefs. So I'm just curious, how much of this this condition with the development of, uh, of delusions and hallucinations, how much of that is contributing by the medications that we, they're taking to treat the condition? And how much of it is the actual Parkinson's? Yes. So actually, to have Parkinson's disease psychosis, it may or may not be caused by the medications themselves. So that's not a requirement for the condition. Oftentimes, the Parkinson's medications or other non-Parkinson's medications do contribute to exacerbating right. the symptoms of hallucinations or delusions, but it's not necessarily required to be the causative factor, but often it is. And that's where us, as a role of consultant exactly. pharmacists, come in to do a thorough medication review 
of prescription and non-prescription medications for all of their chronic conditions to make sure that they're appropriate for medical necessity and to assess for potential to exacerbate confusion or behavioral problems in patients with Parkinson's. And if issues are found, you know, then as a consultant pharmacist, we can recommend deprescribing if it's not medically necessary. If it is medically necessary, we can recommend deprescribing to an alternative agent, which may have less risk for causing CNS side effects. Uh, for example, less anticholinergic uh, potential. That's a big one, anticholinergic burden. Right. And that was actually my next question was, we have a lot of our Parkinson's patients taking anticholinergics to help treat their, their condition. But when that dementia onset kicks in associated with their Parkinson's, a lot of times they'll put them on the Aricept, right? Which once again is counteracting that anticholinergic with a cholinergic. So when is that appropriate? When is it inappropriate? How do we remedy that? Right. So when there is a dementia or cognitive impairment or memory problems in the Parkinson's patient, I think it's it would be very rational, just rational therapeutic recommendation to look at any anticholinergic medications or medications with that property to eliminate it, switch to a less anticholinergic or an agent without any anticholinergic properties. But a lot of times, if it's the anticholinergic for their tremor, for example, in Parkinson's, oftentimes it's not really necessary. You can actually deprescribe it, taper it down, and adjust the dose of their other Parkinson's medications, such as carbidopa, levodopa, or cinnamate, to, right. to compensate for those motor symptoms. And I think that would be a rational way to go as an attempt to improve the situation. So when a pharmacist sees somebody on a cogentin and an Aricept, we could actually recommend getting rid of both of them and maybe going up on the, the Cinemet. Actually, getting rid of the cogentin in that case, the Aricept may be providing benefit for the, okay. for the dementia. It may worsen the tremor in some cases because of the cholinergic effect, right. but that's not a reason, it's not frequent enough, so that's a reason to not use the Aricept. I think the potential benefit outweigh that risk. I think the bigger risk in that case would be the the cogentin because it's very strongly anticholinergic and that has all sorts of peripheral and CMS side effects for the patient. Perfect. So how long do you think the duration should be with Aricept? I'm just curious. Typically, uh, when Aricept started for management of dementia mm -hmm. in Parkinson's, it's lifelong. It's indefinite. Okay. And so what we tell patients is that, uh, you know, if you're ready to take a medication once a day for the rest of your life, which may possibly have benefit for the memory, the cognition, the dementia, there's something that can be prescribed, but you have to be ready to make that commitment. Okay. And then obviously if they're not tolerating it because of GI symptoms, diarrhea, nausea, you can, you may have to try another agent in that case, but typically it would be indefinitely for therapy. Great, and I love that you said, you know, you weighed the risk and the benefit of having the Aricept on board, because I think that we as pharmacists should be doing that daily. Yeah, um, yes. And customize it to that patient individually, so thank you. So I have a brother-in-law who has early onset Parkinson's. I wanna say he is 55, 
somewhere in that range. And he was diagnosed, I think, 10 years ago. And he finally got to the point just a couple of months ago where they implanted a pacemaker. So I'm wondering if we as pharmacists can help identify when pharmacological measures are no longer sufficient. When should, can we as pharmacists be helpful in this decision-making process? When should the pacemaker be appropriate? Right. So this pacemaker, otherwise known as a deep brain stimulator, right, right, is uh, typically considered when the patient is on medically optimized therapy, but yet not obtaining the benefits, the symptom relief, motor symptom relief from the medications. So that means they're on the highest tolerated dose of the medications. They're, right. they're receiving benefit, so they have to be responsive to the cinemet, but they need more. They need more because the condition's advancing, but they cannot tolerate higher doses because of side effects. So that's the case where, okay, you're clearly responding to the cinemet, your medications, but you're having side effects because of your late stage disease, so we cannot increase the medication dose anymore. And so that's where we go to the surgical options, such as deep brain stimulation. Nowadays, there's other options such as the carbidopa levodopa gel, intestinal gel. Oh. Right, which, you know, may serve the same role as a deep brain stimulation or at least a bridge transition state before the deep brain stimulation. But as pharmacists, I think our role is to evaluate the medications to make sure they're optimized, to make sure that the patients are adherent to regimen, right? And they're taking the proper way so that we're really seeing that they are truly responsive or not responsive to the therapy. Because deep brain stimulation is um, it's a major intervention. It's, it's, it's inv- huge. It's an invasive procedure. Now, as pharmacists, you know, I think we have opportunities to also become involved in that too. Exactly. In my practice, I was trained as a programmer for deep brain stimulation, you know, helping out in even in, with the neurosurgeon in the, in the procedure. Oh. So not necessarily in the role of a pharmacist, but as long as you're trained and part of the health member team, you can perform that as a health, licensed healthcare professional. So I think uh, looking outside the box, think of yourself in roles other than just medication. Uh, exactly. Can sometimes help fill the need if, if there's a need within the team for someone with those type of services. I think a pharmacist can render those services just as well as anyone else who's been trained in it. Absolutely. Now, I am totally intrigued that you just mentioned the, the gel. So obviously the benefit is we're passing first pass metabolism. Now, if I remember right, one of the reasons we had two ingredients in cinnamon was that one of them is metabolized heavily and won't cross the blood-brain barrier, and the other one helps it bypass both of those. So do we need both ingredients if we're bypassing first-pass metabolism? Right. So the carbidopa helps prevent the breakdown of the levodopa, and so you have more levodopa to enter into the CNS. And the carbidopa, you're right, it does not enter into the CNS. So once levodopa is in the CNS, that could be converted to dopamine. But you're still infusing the gel into the small intestine. And it is still going through first pass metabolism. Now, if you can- Also, it's not a topical. It's it's a gel. No, no, it's it's actually an intestinal gel. Okay. Infused by pump. So it's infused by a a pump through a tube. So there's a tube placement into a small intestine and it's still absorbed through the small intestine, but it's not something you have to swallow. Right. Uh, So you bypass the swallowing route, but you don't necessarily 
So that's the point of clarification. You don't necessarily yeah. bypass the GI route. That makes more sense. I yeah. apologize, I misunderstood. Yeah. Uh, so now, now if we have a sublingual formulation or a patch formulation or sub-Q formulation, which have all been investigated, that would bypass right. the, the first pass the metabolism you're talking about. Okay. So what is the benefit of using this gel then? If it's not avoiding, if it's still kind of the same thing where it, it's still going through first pass. So the benefit is that the gel will provide a more tailored and continuous dosage of the medication. It's more continuous as opposed to intermittent three times a day dosing. Mm-hmm. For example, cinnamon three times a day or four times a day, which results in high peaks and then troughs. And when you have continuous infusion of the gel, the levodopa levels are smoother. It results in less fluctuations of movement and uh, motor fluctuations are a problem in advanced Parkinson's. And so when you have more continuous administration of the medication, it results in less fluctuations. And so this type of intervention is mainly reserved for individuals who have advanced Parkinson's who are having problems with what we call dyskinesias, too much movement due to the levodopa or wearing off, off periods due to erratic absorption, for example, of the uh, carbidopa levodopa. And then another thing that you're gonna mention in your presentation is the role of pharmacists with psychotropic medications and how to address the prolongation of QT intervals. Right, so when it comes to uh, management of Parkinson's disease psychosis with antipsychotics, some of the antipsychotics have product labeling on precautions about QT interval prolongation. You know, so to address this issue when it does come up, uh, I have data to show that with some of the newer products, such as pimavanserin, which is uh, a new antipsychotic indicated for Parkinson's disease psychosis, that even though uh, there may be uh, information out there about concerns for QT interval prolongation, when you look at the data, actually the signal there and the risk there is much less than what people may have been informed about. So I wanted to set the record straight about that. There, there might be labeling on it, but the signal is not above the regulatory, FDA regulatory threshold for, for concern. Not like with other psychotropics like Celexa uh, or Zoprazidone, Geodone. So I want, I'll, I'll present data to allay any concerns about the QT interval situation with some of the antipsychotics we use. And one more follow-up question on that gel. Is there any prior authorization concerns? Is it readily covered? Anything, can, any concerns there? Yeah, so uh, the gel is a, you know, it's a medication with the device and it's a surgical, you know, a minimally invasive surgical procedure to place the, the, the G-tube, the tube. Uh, but there needs to be uh, coverage for it through the local or federal plan that the patient has. You know, Medicare will usually cover the okay. cost of the procedure, right? Uh, but I think more important is the access to the expertise for that intervention. Absolutely. Yeah, because it does require appropriate procedure and not only that, but appropriate follow-up. Right. For Because it is a device as well. Is it something they can self-administer is it, or is this something they'd have to reside longer in a nursing home for administration? Well, yeah, so the pump itself needs to be maintained so there has to be someone able to 
help with that, support the patient with that. And so, you know, I think as long as there's that, that structure in place, that will result in better outcomes with that type of, of, of therapy. It may not be for everyone or feasible right. for everyone. But fascinating nonetheless. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Shen, for coming on today's show. You provided a lot of great information for our listeners about Parkinson's disease, as well as new treatments out on the market. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure for us as well. Thank you very much.